That was beautiful. You guys, listening to you sing, it was really beautiful. And one of the reasons that I love teaching the Bible is I have been in this passage of scripture now for weeks, thinking it through, trying to seek the Lord. What would you have me to say about this passage? And then to hear us singing these truths that it's not me, it's Christ in me, and how that relates to what I've been studying, and teach me to abide. It's just a beautiful sound to hear you guys singing. I just am really thankful to hear you all this morning. We are going to be in the book of John, chapter 15. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open there. So like Anna said, I am Sarah Rogers. I am married to Matt Rogers. He's a pastor at uh, the church in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, it, the, one of the reasons she stumbled over the name is because we've changed our name of our church like three times. It's a long story. I can tell you why later. They're all logical good reasons. But we have finally, two years ago, settled on Christ Fellowship Cherrydale. So even I, sometimes people ask me, what church do you go to? And I'm like... The church at Christmas, I promise, I'm the pastor's wife, I go there, I know the name of the church. Um, But we have been at our, we planted this church and then merged with a church, so this is part of why we have so many names, Um, but we planted about 13 years ago. We had two children at the time that we planted, two girls, and then six months later, after our second daughter was born, we found out we were pregnant with our third and had not even received our first support check. We were living in a mission house in Greenville. You know, people have said, we're going to give you money to help support you, but we haven't seen any money coming in yet. And we were thinking, really, Lord, now is the time you want to give us a third child. This, okay, we're going to trust you and go through that. Um, A few years later, when our church merged, we found out we were pregnant with our fourth. And then through some very strange circumstances where we thought we were having no more children, We got pregnant with a fifth. And so we have five children. Our oldest will be 16 in December, and our youngest is three. So a big span of children. I do homeschool them, um, and that has been a really sweet experience that I never thought we would do. I was a public school teacher and thought that I would put my kids back in school, um, but the Lord had other plans for that too, and it's been just a great experience to have them at home with us. And I do work at my church. I serve in women's ministry, on the music team. Um, And then two years ago, I started working with the Pillar Network, as Anna mentioned. Um, So this is a group of churches who want to partner together to plant and revitalize churches all around the United States and now all around the world. We're getting churches from South America, Europe, who want to join with us um, and join together to help plant and revitalize churches. So it's been a really sweet Um, few years of ministry and seeing God uh, use just these relationships that he's forming for things like this, that I get to come and see what your church is like and how you are doing ministry in in Queens. I'm learning to, you know, the parts of New York because I'm not from here. You guys, I am from Columbia, South Carolina, the capital right in the middle of the Triangle State. And I lived in the same house from when I was three years old until I went to college. 
Some of my best friends in high school were friends that I went to school with in elementary, middle school, and high school. Um, but I graduated from high school, went to the northern part of the state, which is Greenville, where I live now, um, closer to the mountains, and went to college there. And I've pretty much lived in Greenville for the last 22 years, uh, minus a four-year little stint where we moved to Wake Forest, North Carolina for two years, and then Clemson, South Carolina for two years. Then we came back to Greenville. So Greenville actually feels more like home, definitely, than Columbia ever did, because I'm, I've lived there for so long. And I thought that New York City, when I came here, I thought that New York was a pretty transient place where a lot of people come in from other places. But I learned Thursday night at our dessert and coffee with a few ladies from the church uh, that it's not as much as I thought. Um, I saw or learned that many people were born and raised right here, that they've been here since they were kids. And I was very surprised by that. So I just want to see, raise your hand if you are from this area, you grew up here and you still live here. Good grief. I mean, I am really shocked. I really did not think that was going to be the case. (laughs) This must be a great place to live if you don't want to go anywhere. Oh, wait, I'm seeing no shake. (laughs) Okay, I'm getting a mixed reaction to that statement. She said it's a separate question, whether you grew up and were born here and raised here and whether you, it's a good place to stay. Okay, I got it. I got it. Um, do we have a church from New Jersey here? Oh, okay, okay. Gotcha. Okay. So, Greenville, South Carolina is a small but growing city. Um, and it's interesting because right now we have a lot of people moving in from Greenville. It is rare for me to meet someone who was born and raised in Greenville, South Carolina. Most of the time they are born there, they go to college somewhere else, they get a job and maybe come back to Greenville for a few years, but then they're going to Charlotte, Atlanta, they're like moving out of Greenville. So it is a very transient place and we have a word that we give to people when they're moving into a new place, right? They're called transplants, right? When you move from one place to another. So I am technically a transplant to Greenville because I didn't grow up there. Um, And it's interesting right now because we actually have a lot of people moving to Greenville from New York, from California. I think we have like four or five families that just moved into our church from California. It's really interesting. And it's so funny because we can tell that they're not from around here. It is very, I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing as I look at these ladies right here because I was asking if they could tell I'm from the South, because you probably can. <laughs> you can just tell you're not from around here. They don't say y'all. That's not a thing that they do. Uh, you can't tell them, like I was told as a kid, I knew you from when you were knee high to a grasshopper. <laughs> is that a phrase you've ever heard? <laughs> knee high to a grasshopper, like when you were really little. I knew you from when you were really little. Um, They don't like our sweet tea. Shocking. (laughs) And many times we look at them and say, bless your heart. Bless your heart. But it's funny, we laugh at them. I was talking to my sister about this this morning. We laugh at them the first time we catch them saying y'all We're like, oh, we've got you now. You're becoming a Southerner. (laughs) 
and we encourage them the first time they make sweet tea correctly, <laughs> boiling the tea bags in, on the pot, pouring it in with the right amount of sugar. We're like, you're doing it. You're, you're becoming one of us. We can see it. Yeah, they're, that's right. <laughs> and slowly, those transplants begin to look more and more like Southerners, right? It still never really leaves. They're never truly one of us. But slowly, you can't really tell the difference anymore between where they came from um, and where they are now. So in these two sessions today, what we're going to look at is God's call for Christians to make their home in him. Like a transplant, he has taken us out of this old life that we've lived, and he's bringing us into this new home. And it's kind of strange at first. We can tell you are not from here. <laughs> it's, it's a process of growing in that. But he, as he pulls us in, we make our home in him, we start looking more and more like him. He changes us to make us look like a citizen of his kingdom, like children in his family. And after a while, you can't tell the difference. You never knew that there was any difference because we look so much like him. So in our first session today, I want to instill confidence in you that God can be trusted to produce fruit in your life. And in the second session, we're going to look at the fruit that he produces in us. So let's look at John 15, verses 1 through 8. I'm reading from the CSB Bible, so if it sounds a little different, that could be, could be why. Starting in verse 1 of John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples." This passage, starting in John 15, is set at the very end of Jesus' life. He has just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. He's just washed their feet. They've taken the Last Supper together. Judas has gone out from them to betray him, and he knows it. He told him, I'm the one who dips this bread in the cup with me, it's he who's going to betray me. He knows this is coming He's already predicted his death in the few chapters before. I know that I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised again in three days. He knows that this is going to happen. In the next few hours, he is going to be killed on the cross. And these few chapters are his last words to his disciples. If you think about someone's last words to you, those are really important words, right? Things that you want to treasure and remember. Um, my father-in-law passed away just about six weeks ago in a very unexpected um, way. He uh, just didn't wake up one morning. And all of my family, my kids, my husband, uh, my mother-in-law, we were all thinking, when was the last time that we talked to him? What did he say to us? We wanted to remember 
what were those last words to us? Because those are treasures. We want to hold on to them, right? The same way here, Jesus is saying, I need you to listen. (laughs) There's an urgency here. Just don't forget these things. These are the most important things I want you to remember because I'm getting ready to leave you. I'm getting ready to go away. And he says later, it's going to be good for you that I go away because you're going to get the Holy Spirit, but I need you to remember these words. So these are important words for us to consider today. And as we look through the passage, we see three different characters in this passage. The vine, the gardener, or the vine dresser, as some of your versions might say, and the branches. So I want us to look at these characters. The first one we're going to examine is the vine dresser. And I want you to see that the vine dresser is planting a vineyard. The gardener, the vine dresser, is planting a vineyard. That is at the top of your sheet if you want to write that down. He is planting a vineyard. As we think through the story of scripture, we see that God has always described himself as a gardener. If you think back to the very beginning in Genesis, what does he make for Adam and Eve to live in? A garden. That's right. He makes a garden and he puts the man in to work it and keep it, right? He is the original garden. He is making a people for himself, Adam and Eve. He's putting them in his place that he's made for them, this garden, And he wants them to live under his rule and reign, his good rule and reign. He wants to give them life so that they would grow and spread and fill the earth with more image bearers. It's this beautiful picture of perfection here in this garden. But we all know how that story goes, right? They choose their way, their own way. Instead of making their home with God, enjoying this home that he's made for them, they decide that they know the best way to live life. And so they leave that home because of their sin. And they fill the earth with more people who pursue their own way. That is why the world is the way that it is today. Because it is full now of people who have no regard for God and his way. They are only living for themselves in their own way. But we see through the story of the Old Testament that God is powerful to save. And he causes people like Noah, Enoch, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua to make their home with him. He calls those people to himself. In the Old Testament story of Israel, as it continues, we see that the symbol of the nation of Israel was a vine. I don't know if you've seen this in scripture before, but the symbol of the whole nation was a vine, and God was their vine dresser. He was caring for them, pruning them, making them into a people who would bring him glory. As they made their home in God's land that he had prepared for them, with him as their center. And this symbol even decorated the gates of the temple. The symbol of a vine decorated the gates of the temple. God's house, right? And this house was designed to highlight the greatness of God and be a reflection of God's beauty and majesty. That's what the people were designed to do too, to highlight the greatness of God and his work in their lives. My husband says a lot, which he told me recently that he got this from someone else. So somewhere someone said this, but I heard it recently from my husband, that the people of God and the house of God were designed to be a shop window for the nations. As the nations went by, they would look at Israel, they would look at the temple and say, man, their God is really great. It was supposed to draw them in. And as the nation saw Israel thriving under the rule and reign of God, they would be grafted into the vine of Israel. That was the goal, was to draw people in. 
Isaiah prophesies the words of God in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. He says, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. This is a picture of Israel. God is making this place for them. He's giving them this land flowing with milk and honey, and he wants to see them being fruitful. But what does he get? Not not good fruit. He gets worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. That's Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. So this vine that God planted, that he was tending, that he wanted to see it thrive, instead of it thriving, producing fruit, it's producing worthless grapes. Instead of the the fruits of righteousness and justice, it's producing injustice and unrighteousness. However, all hope isn't lost, right? That's still in the Old Testament. Hope isn't lost because the vine dresser is choosing a new people who will believe and make their home with him, like we see in John 15. Now, I have tried my hand at gardening. We have a little uh, land at our house, a little land. It's like a third of an acre, okay, small. Um, I don't know what I'm doing, though, but I really like to put seeds in the ground and just see what happens, what comes up. And I'm not really a fan of putting seeds in the ground and trying to do something and then it not giving me anything. So I'm not a big flower. Like flowers are pretty. I guess it gives me beauty. But I want to put like vegetables in the ground or fruit trees or something that's I'm going to get something out of this, right? Um, So we actually have two apple trees. We have a little vegetable garden. And every year I put vegetables in there. Sometimes I get a vegetable. Other times I don't. And I never know why because I don't care enough to find out. I just want to see what happens. Um, But a few, probably right after we moved in, so maybe eight years ago, we planted a muscadine vine because my husband loves muscadines. Has anybody ever had a muscadine? My goodness. Okay, they look like grapes. They look like grapes, round like grapes, but the outside has kind of a skin on it, like a shell that you don't eat that part. You put it in your mouth, you like squeeze the skin to open it up kind of like you would a nut. And the inside part comes out, then you spit out the skin, the shell part. But then in that inside part, there are seeds. You don't want to eat those either because they're bitter and they taste gross. It's kind of hard work, actually. (laughs) Now, Now that I'm talking about it, it's hard work. But they are so sweet and really, I should have brought a sample. I didn't, I don't. And you'll see why. 
So we planted this vine because my husband loves muscadines. He had them when he was growing up, so it brings back some childhood memories. And I said, oh, well, we'll plant a muscadine vine. So over these eight years, I think I've gotten a handful of muscadines. And so there's a man in our church who plants muscadines. He has his own muscadine vine. His are beautiful. And he brings us every year a giant bag of muscadines. And he brings us mason jars full of muscadine juice that he and his wife press by hand. I'm like, how do you have enough muscadines to make juice and give me, I'm getting a handful. What is, what am I doing wrong? So I actually asked him to come to my house this past year and say, look at them. What, what am I doing? What is, what am I not doing right? Why am I not getting any? And he said, well, you can't even see your branches. They're just growing everywhere. You, what you need to do is cut it all back. You got to cut it all back and get to that main trunk. Keep a couple of branches off of that main trunk because they're not getting any nutrients. As they spread out, all these branches are stealing nutrients and it's not enough to produce fruit. So you got to cut all that off. Cut it all back. Kind of starting over again. I was really nervous. I was like, I'm going to kill these things. They're just, it's like a stick out of the ground. That's all I have left with a couple of little branches off. But lo and behold, this year, lo and behold, that's another Southern thing, I think. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this year, I got like 10 really good muscadines. And he said, I know 10 doesn't sound great, but if you keep doing that, this year in the fall, if you cut it back again, take care of pulling all those nutrients back in, then in the spring, you keep watch over it. You cut those tendrils off so that it forces all those nutrients to produce the fruit. You're going to start getting more and more and more muscadines. So I'm listening to him because he knows what he's doing, right? He is a real gardener. <laughs> I am a pretend wannabe gardener. He is a real gardener. And so I'm listening to him. And in the same way that he was describing how he tends his vines, it reminded me of how God is tending his vines. He, his goal is that we would produce fruit. He said that in Isaiah, I expected it to produce fruit. So I had to prune it back. I had to cut off these branches because they're not producing. That is my goal is for them to produce fruit. We see in this that God is the designer of his vineyard. He is designing a vineyard that will grow and spread and produce fruit. And he has grafted you in if you are a believer here today. He has grafted you. He has designed you to be in his vine, attached to his vine. Praise the Lord. But he's also the judge. He's going out looking at this vine and examining which of these are producing fruit which are not, which are dead branches that I need to pull off because they're just taking nutrients. They're not producing anything. Which are producing some fruit, but I need to prune them back so that it really focuses those nutrients on that one section of branch. He is the judge. He is the cultivator. He, to, in order to examine that, you have to be up close to the vine, to the branch, right? He is a cultivator. He is close and intimately involved in the fruitful branches, checking for wayward tendrils that need to be removed, training the branch to grow in the direction he wants it to so that it produces more fruit. He's intimately involved. And he has been working from the beginning to grow a vineyard full of fruitful branches that are connected to him. From the very beginning, in the garden, he's been working to produce a vineyard of fruitful branches. And you're here 
as a result of that work. Because he wants you to grow and spread and fill the earth with more fruitful branches. Think about how God has been intimately involved in the story of your life. From the beginning, when you were born, your family's history, even before that, to graft you into his vine. He has been designing all of human history so that his people would be in his place under his rule and reign, thriving under his rule and reign. In my own family, I can look back at my grandparents' faith and see how they trained my parents to know and love the Lord, and that was passed on to me. God's drawing in my life meant that I was born in my specific family at this time in history in Columbia, South Carolina, where I would hear the gospel and place faith in him. I mean, that is shocking. He is so intimately involved in our lives to draw us to himself. He has designed human history so that I would be grafted into the vine. This is shocking love, shocking intimacy with us. I want you to keep that in your mind as we continue to look at this passage. We see, secondly, that the vine dresser gives life through the true vine. Through the true vine. So the vine dresser is planting a vineyard, and he is giving life through the true vine. Jesus calls himself here the true vine. And this would have been shocking to the disciples. All of his I am statements, this is another one of them, the last one, would have been shocking to his disciples. But he is calling himself the true Israel. God had designed this people. They failed. I am the true Israel. I will not fail. He is building the true people of God who would always remain. Nothing can take them out of his hand. And they will showcase God to the nations. Jesus gathers God's people in God's place, which is now in us, right? He lives in us under his rule and reign. And he's moving us to where we will be with him forever. Jesus is the better vine because unlike Israel, he completely, fully, wholeheartedly obeyed his father. His entire life was marked with perfect love and obedience to his father and love for us. We tend to say, you know, Jesus died for me. That leaves out a whole chunk of his life, though. He also lived for you. He chose every day to be perfect, to not sin, so that he could die in your place and take your punishment. That's not like Israel. Israel did not do that. Unlike Israel, who sacrificed animals yearly for sin, Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all with an offering that was so powerful it would cover every sin for all time for anyone who would believe. And unlike Israel, who experienced judgment and oppression and death for their sin, Jesus experienced God's full judgment for our sin. And he was resurrected to life and given power to free everyone who believes from captivity to sin. And now for those who believe, Jesus' life flows in us. The per, through the person of the Holy Spirit, just like the nutrients of the vine flow through the branches. In Romans 11, he, uh, Paul talks about this picture of Israel um, and the Gentiles who have been grafted in. And he says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them 
and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. It's not about us holding on with all of our might because we can't. It's about Jesus holding on to us. When he grafts us in, he holds on to us. The root supports us. So God is powerful to save. And the same power that causes us, that same power causes us to make our home with him. Then the third character we see are these unfruitful branches. So the third point is the vine dresser cultivates fruitful branches. There are two kinds of branches, though, that we see. One is unfruitful branches. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what, how are these unfruitful branches? What is, what is that about? But these could be branches that were never grafted in in the fir- first place. Like they're just dead, laying on the ground. They've never been grafted in. Like the parable of the sower, if you think back to that parable, that those who hear the word but they don't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away so nothing ever grows. But there can also be branches that look like branches, look like they're in Christ, but they never actually produce fruit. Think again about the parable of the sower. There are those seeds that fall on the ground and they like shoot up really quickly, but there's no depth of soil and under persecution, they wither away. Or those where the word springs up, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So these are people who were never actually in Christ. They've never actually been grafted in. They may have had some signs of external belief, but as time goes on, they prove, because they leave, that they were never actually in him. There is a danger of superficial attachment to Jesus that is not saving attachment. And we can see whether that is true in our lives and the lives of other people around us by our fruit and our perseverance. By our fruit and our perseverance. There's a picture, I actually saw this recently on a video, where there was a, a place in the world that they were actually doing this. They were taking uh, branches, they wanted to see like colorful leaves on their trees, and so they were tying fake branches onto real trees to make them look like they were colorful, had colorful leaves. I'm like, this is weird. Why? That seems like a lot of effort (laughs) and work to tie these branches on. But we can tend to be the same way, like people who are stapling on spiritual fruit. If you think back to that, um, the other word picture that Jesus gives in the Gospels, that fruit comes from the root of the, whatever tree, whatever fruit is being produced comes from the root, Right? So we can either be people that the, the root is giving us the nutrients we need to actually produce fruit, or we can be like people who are just stapling on good works. I'm just going to staple this on and look like I'm a good person, look like I'm doing the right things, look like I'm a Christian, but really it doesn't come from the root of a heart that has been changed by Jesus. I'm just kind of stapling on these good works. We don't want to be fruit staplers because that doesn't last. If you, if you try to do that with actual fruit, the fruit just rots and dies, right? We don't want to be those kind of people. It has to come. Our fruit has to come from Jesus doing a work in our heart and giving us his life that then produces that fruit. Um, in 1 John, John gives this example that, um, saying that these, there were people who left, and he said they went out from us, 
but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Perseverance is a key to seeing, is my fruit really coming from the root of Jesus and a changed heart that he's given me? Or is it, am I just fruit stapling? These kind of branches, unfruitful branches, either ones that were never grafted in or ones that have just been stapling fruit on their whole lives, are taken away. They're gathered to be thrown into the fire and burned. It's a danger that we need to look out for. But we also see that the vine dresser and the vine produce fruitful branches. So these are branches that are already producing fruit, which is what it said in... um, Oh, let me look back. In verse 2, that he produces, or these branches produce fruit, he prunes them so that they will produce more fruit. They're already producing fruit, and he wants them to be more and more and more fruitful. So there are unfruitful branches and then branches that produce fruit. And we who are in Christ are those fruitful branches. Whether you feel like that or not, there is fruit that God is working in you. But we can also work with God in this process of pruning and growing more fruitful. And he tells us how, by abiding in him, by remaining in him, which that, you know, is not, that's not what I want. (laughs) Give me a checklist of the things I need to do to produce fruit. Just, you just want me to stay? That's it? Uh, Well, that's. That's harder for me. I want the checklist, not the just being, just be with me. Okay, well. So in verse 6, he says, if anyone does not abide in me. So not abiding is proof that you weren't attached to the vine in the first place. But in verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that is proof that you have been attached to the vine. You are his disciple. So what does it mean to abide? Literally, it means to stay, to remain, or to make your home with. And there is an importance here to get this order right. We don't abide in Jesus. We don't stay, read our Bible, you know, those kind of things that we can do to abide in him. To become a branch that is fit to be attached to the vine We abide because he has made us a branch, grafted us into this vine. It's produced out of something that is already a reality. Does that make sense? We have to get the order right. Jesus has to do a work in us first to attach us to himself. And out of that, we see this fruit being produced. Out of that, we see a desire to abide, to stay with him. And so our command is actually to be who we already are. You are attached to him, stay attached to him. He has connected you to the vine, stay connected to the vine. Persevere, keep going, stay there. This is relationship language. Abiding is relationship language. It's not a one-time thing, like uh, praying a prayer at a certain time of your life, but it's a relationship that grows until it defines your life. And if you think about this, if you moved into your home or have ever lived somewhere new, when you first move in, it doesn't really feel like yours, right? The longer you live there, you add your touches, you have your people come in, um, there are experiences and memories that you have now attached to this place, the more that home kind of defines your life. 
feels like the place that you belong. And in the same way, as we make our home in Jesus, the longer we live with him, the longer we stay with him, clinging to him, knowing him, growing in love for him, living with his people, experiencing his love and his care for us, the more we live into him and he into us, he starts to define us completely. We belong. We can't go anywhere else. We can say like his disciples, where would I go? You alone have the words of life. I can't go anywhere else. So how do I abide? I have a few A's for you. I should have done this earlier. I was saying in this group when we did this little breakout or uh, icebreaker thing, I'm like, my name starts with S. What words start with S? I can't even think of a word that starts with S. When you're put on the spot like that, you're like, I have no idea. But I have a lot of A's. Okay. So how do I abide? How do we abide? The first A, you have to accept your position. Accept your position. You are a dependent branch. And apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. We have to accept that position. That's hard to accept because I want to do things. But apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And we have to accept that. We can do nothing in salvation. Jesus didn't come to be a good model for us. He came to live a life that we couldn't live, die a death that we deserved, and be raised to life so that we can live. We did none of that. There was nothing that we offered there. If you are in the vine, I thought that verse 3 was just kind of strange that he stuck this in here. (laughs) He's talking about the vine being pruned, these branches being thrown away, and then he says, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What does that have to do with vines and branches? And it just, it seems kind of like it's just thrown in there. I didn't know this, but the word clean is actually related to the word prune. They are similar. And so he's using kind of a play on words here to say, you've already been grafted in. You've already been pruned. I'm just going to prune you more so you can be more fruitful. And he uses the same um, idea back in the passage, uh, two, two chapters before, where he's washing the disciples' feet in John 13, and he gets to Peter, and Peter says, you can't wash me. He says, I have to wash you. If I don't wash you, you're not clean. And he says, well, then wash all of me. And he says, no, I don't have to do that. I've already washed you. I just need to wash your feet. That's the part that's dirty. The same thing applies to us. When you've been grafted in, you're already clean. He has cleansed you of sin. You are positionally in him at that point. And out of that, He is cleaning us still, making us look more and more like Jesus. In the same way, those grafted into the vine are already clean. They're given the righteousness that comes through faith. So accept your position in salvation. Then that doesn't change as we live the Christian life, so we have to accept our position in sanctification. The same connection that saved us is the connection that we live in daily to look more and more like Jesus until we see him face to face. The fruit that he produces in us is in us. We hear that language in um, Galatians 5 that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
These are all inward characteristics that then produce outward actions. So in sanctification, we have to rely on our position that apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, I cannot love. Apart from him, I cannot have joy. Apart from him, I cannot have patience or I could keep going. You see the point here, right? The way we started in faith, being grafted in, relying on him, doing, can't, not being able to do anything apart from him, is the way we continue in this life as a Christian. Now, if you're like me, you can look around and you see people who aren't connected to Jesus who do good things, right? So how can Jesus say that apart from me, you can do nothing? I see people doing things all the time. The reason he can say that is because apart from him, we can do nothing that lasts. We can do nothing that has eternal value. Without dependence on Jesus, we will waste our whole lives on things that have no eternal value. Apart from Jesus, we can have nothing of longevity that will last in our lives. I might be able to be loving for a little while, but as soon as you get on my nerves, I don't, my love tank is now drained. And at that point, we can see we have been fruit staplers. If I get to that point where my love has been drained, I have no more love for you. I can see I've been living on my own. I'm not depending on Jesus because if I were, he would continue to give me love to love the hard people. If my joy is drained and I just have no joy, I can see I'm not depending on Jesus because his joy would flow through me. So we can see in those areas, are we fruit stapling here? Are we just adding on these good works in our own strength, not depending on Jesus? And then we can see this in mission. Because bearing fruit is not only an inward change in us, but it should be so outward that people look at us and say, wow, you are, what is different about you? And Jesus wants to build a large vineyard that will glorify his father. He wants more branches grafted in. Praise the Lord for that. So our connection to the vine should overflow so that those far from God but close to us are drawn into the vine as well. Those far from God but close to us see his goodness in our life, see his supplying our needs, his giving us the nutrients to be able to have longevity and have fruit that lasts, and they're drawn to that. Now think of the opposite of this verse. So he says, um, oh, my brain just went blank. <laughs> Let me look back. Yes. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Thank you, brain. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But think of the opposite of that verse. With me, you can do everything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, you will produce fruit. Fruit that will last into eternity. Fruit in your own life that you will see me continuing to provide what you need. It will last. This is a promise we can hold on to. Because God is powerful to save and produce fruitful branches that are fit for him. Okay, next one. We're going to agree to be kept by God. So accept your position. Agree to be kept by God. So he promises he's going to keep you. He's going to hold on to you. 
He's going to prune you to make you produce more fruit. But we, we need to agree to that because if you know a thing or two about pruning, if you're the branch having these things cut off of you, pinched off of you, that's not fun. That doesn't feel good in the moment, right? So this is not an easy process. It's, it's something we need to agree to. Yes, Lord, prune me. I know this is not going to feel good, but make me more like Jesus. How does God prune us? Through suffering and trials of various kinds. And he prunes us through discipline. To train us. This is why I give you these commands. I'm training you in this way so that you know what I say is good and right. So come back to it. Discipline just means training. He's training us. And that, that is not comfortable. Um, even in Hebrews, he says, this is like a son or like a father disciplining his son. If you've ever had to do that as a parent or be on the other end of that as a child, it's not fun, but it's necessary for us. This is how he prunes us. And these are difficult to agree to, but it's how he keeps you. It's how he produces more fruit in you. So we have to believe that God is good in every trial, in every suffering, in every discipline that we go through, because we're going to see the fruit of character, perseverance, hope, peace, and righteousness. He says that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There is a goal for that. He's not just giving suffering into your life with no purpose. He has plans and purposes for you, and it's to change you to make you look more like Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, suppose that what you're up against in trials and suffering is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. Because if he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, then all the pain up to that point would have been useless. He is a good surgeon. He's going to cut out the pieces of your life that are not producing fruit because he knows producing fruit is what will make you thrive. It's what will give you joy. The things that you're looking for come out of these things that don't feel good at the time. So we have to agree. Lord, whatever you bring me through, I know you're good and right in that. I'm going to agree with you that this thing you're bringing into my life is for my good and it's for your glory. The next A, we have to abdicate our throne. Abdicate, spelled just like it sounds, abdicate. Abdicate our throne. Jesus wants every part of your life connected to him so that every part of your life surges with his life and strength, producing fruit that will last. Uh, I Writer Abraham Kuyper says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That is mine. Give it to me. This is mine. Give it to me. He wants your heart. He wants your future plans. He wants your work, your home, your dating relationships, your marriage, your sexuality. He wants all of you. 
And he wants that not because he's just some greedy guy who wants it for himself, but because he knows that when you give those things to him, you will experience life and thriving. And he wants to give you good things, but he knows he can't do that as long as you're holding on to those. So we have to abdicate our throne. I'm not in charge of my life anymore. I'm giving that to you. I surrender to you every part of my life. Next, we adore Jesus. So again, we often think that in order to grow as a Christian, there are a lot of things we have to do. I need to be doing this thing and checking this thing off and serving here and all of these things. But actually, it is inward change that produces those external changes. And if we neglect those inward changes to just focus on the external, we actually lose the change that produces that fruit in the first place. Thomas Chalmers calls this the expulsive power of a new affection. That as we grow in our love for Jesus, as we keep our eyes fixed on him, as we grow in our thankfulness to him and dependence on him, that love grows so much in us that we don't want anything to do with our old life. We don't want anything to do with unfruitfulness. We want to please him because our love for him has grown so much. So the only way to produce fruit is to keep your eyes on Jesus. Adore him. In Hebrews it says, let us run the race with endurance, keeping our eyes on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. As we run, as we do these things, we have to do them with our eyes fixed on Jesus and not lose that sight. And then lastly, we can access him through prayer. Access him through prayer. A life that abides in Christ is one that prays without ceasing. It's one who recognizes that my life is wholly dependent on Jesus And so I'm going to bring every need I have to him. There's nothing I can do apart from him, so I need to bring every need to him. One of the best indicators of how well you abide in Jesus, and this is convicting for me to say out loud, one of the best indicators of how well you abide in Jesus is how much you talk to him in prayer. This is why we're called to pray without ceasing. It's not another checklist. It's out of your abiding, out of your dependence on him, talk to him. We have to. He, he is where our life comes from, so I need to go to him. Bring your needs and requests to God, and he says that whatever you ask in his name, it will be given to you. As we grow to love him, we're going to ask the things that he agrees with. He wants to give those things, and he will give them. So as we abide, we look forward to the day like Revelation describes, where John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne that said, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. He lived with us on earth in the form of Jesus and one day he lives with us now by his spirit, but one day he will live with us. He will be with us. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. We look forward to that day when we reach our eternal home with God, and we will abide with him forever. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you have done all the work that is necessary for us to be connected to you because there is no way we could have done it. And knowing that, you sent Jesus to live the life that we could not live. We could not obey perfectly. You sent him to die the death that we deserved because our sin made us enemies of you. We deserved to die for our sin. We deserved the punishment. And you raised him to life because his sacrifice was perfect and it perfectly covers the sins of those who will come to you in faith. We thank you, God, for the work that you have done on our behalf. And I pray that as we remember that work that you have done for us, that it would produce in us love and joy, thankfulness to you, gratefulness to you, and dependence on you, knowing that the same way that you started in our lives is the way that we have to continue, abiding in you. And I thank you for a day that we get to do that, that we get to set aside um, other responsibilities and even things that we may have brought in today that are um, heavy on our hearts, burdens that we brought in, um, we get to set those aside and just abide in you, just think about you, grow in our love for you. I thank you for the words that you've told us, that if we will come to you, all you who are weary and burdened, that you give us rest, that we can take your yoke on us because you are gentle and lowly in heart, and we will find rest for our souls because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. It is light because you've done it all. There is nothing we have to do except to put our faith in you and depend on you. Help us to do that. Help us to learn how to do that today. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Sarah. Wow. Oh, that was so good. You know, it's, I was thinking about the passage you just closed with. If you were here on Wednesday night for Bible study, where we were in, um, we were in Matthew, and we got to that. Ed was teaching on that, and I've been meditating on that passage this week, and just how wonderful those of us who are weary and heavy laden. If you don't know Jesus today, ladies, and you are weary and heavy laden, your burden is heavy please come to him because he gives such great rest. And what a wonderful reminder of that. I love a couple of the things you said, that it is relationship language. Like we must have the relationship with him for this abiding, that is what it means. And the rest that it is. You want to abide in me? You know what that means? It's not the spinning your wheels to work. It's not the stapling of the fruit. It's just come, come, rest in me. It is a relationship. And um, probably the most convicting word to me was your last point. Uh, one of the best indicators of how you are abiding is how much time you talk to Jesus. So may God help me with my prayer life to be more consistent and vibrant. Um, oh, so many good things. Great thing is, in a little bit, you're going to get to talk about these things some more as we break out into discussion groups. So I'm looking forward to that. I want to give you some instruction on that. Um, we are, it's just, I, I, I feel like I need to talk for the next three and a half minutes so that we'll stay on schedule or else we might be early. And I don't want to do that. That would just break all tradition to be early. Okay, so um, when we go out, so 
there is a wonderful spread. I'm assuming some of the little ant army that went out, did somebody go out that door to work on that? Marion, go see if somebody actually is removing the spread over the food. Um, We have a great little coffee break. 30 minutes we are giving you, I'm going to actually say about 28 minutes because I'd like you sitting back in your seats at 11 o'clock for our next time together. Here's the rule. Remember, most important rule. Well, first of all, most important thing is go and fellowship. We wanted to give you this much time together because the part of the wonderfulness of a day like today is to get to know some other sisters in Christ, to get to know some other uh, uh, people that have attended. Make those who are here uh, from other churches feel welcome. Even if you say, I'm from North Shore, and I think she's from North Shore, go up. Don't be embarrassed. Ask their name. Ask them to take their hair off their name tag and find out what their name is. Get to know some people. If you see someone sitting alone, not knowing anyone, go to them. So here's the deal. You may stay in here. You just may only have your nice bottle of water if you do. So if I were you, I would get up and walk in there. In the hallway is the coffee and a bunch of little goodies. All right, ladies, back we go. See, wasn't that much shorter than you thought that would be? It was fun, though. Sorry for the little bit of bottleneck. Not really sure what to do differently with, because <laughs> we, we don't have a lot of space. I, also, I'm very sorry. I stood up, and my name is Anna Moore. I just assumed that <laughs> half of you people don't go to this church, so you have no idea who this lady is talking to you. My name is Anna Moore. My husband is Ed Moore, the pastor of... North Shore Baptist, and Emily nicely introduced herself to you, but I did not, so please forgive me for that. We're very happy you're here. Um, So I, I, it was so funny, um, it was very funny, Sarah, you were talking about the, you know, I'm I'm, I'm what you would call a transplant. I'm a 30-year transplant, so from the south to the north, but, um, and I thought, I wonder if we did a contest who would have the most southern accent. I don't know. After 30 years, I'd say I'm still doing pretty good. I have not lost mine. You came straight out of it. I've been here 30 years. Well, you, I still have some. Sure I do. Yeah. I'm just going to start throwing it around. Yeah. I, I, she, we've been together for a day and a half, and she just started laughing. She goes, I heard somebody else say that. I said, what? She goes, ay, ay, ay. I said, ay. It must be a New York thing. <laughs> So I said, I let, when she was coming from the airport and she goes, I don't know, I said y'all to them on the plane. And I said, you know, it's okay. Sometimes I yet a, let a y'all slip, you know, like it's a curse word or something. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're going to teach her, ay, ay, ay. All right. So <laughs> bet you didn't know this. 1996. So in 1994, a little history lesson for those of you who weren't at North Shore Baptist then, Dennis Newell from Three Rivers Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina, where we had previously been, came to do a men's retreat. He did marriage conference. Marion, she's not in here, would remember. Were you around for like the marriage renewal? You might not have. But were you here in 94? See, not even Jackie was here. I am the only one that, Maria Valley might have been in that picture. Where are you? Do you remember the marriage renewal? Absolutely. Sharon, you were here in 94. We had Dennis speaking. And one of the ladies in the church back then, who they've moved out of state now, she was so kind, wanted to, to meet the needs of our speaker. He had stood from the pulpit and talked about his great love for banana pudding. And 
of course I knew what he was talking about, right? I'm a southerner. I know good vanilla way for banana pudding, just like Magnolia Bakery makes starting in 1996. But in 1994, no good New Yorker knew what banana pudding was. So he stood up and talked about banana pudding. And this lady, Diane Dempsey, was so excited. She came in the next night for the, the meeting, the conference we were having. And she goes, I'm so excited. I just wanted to bless him. And I bought him some banana pudding. And I'm like, wow. I'm thinking, where in the world? Kind of like sweet tea here. Where in the world did you get that? And she pulled out the Hunt's individual, like they have vanilla and chocolate in the grocery store, the banana-flavored pudding. And I said, oh, oh. And I just didn't say anything. And I let her go give the banana-flavored pudding to this fine southern gentleman. And he was the most gracious man, much more gracious than I would have been. And he profusely thanked her. And I had the greatest story of cultural difference I have ever known. (laughs) So muscadines, banana pudding, trendy Magnolia Bakery. Come on now, people. You got to get with the, uh, the, the, we're going to cross cultural lines here. So um, we are going to sing three songs, right? And then we are breaking into our groups. So what do you think is easier, Emily, to confuse them now with the group instructions or after they sing? What if we confuse them now and then they can enjoy singing? Okay. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I set you up for failure on that. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I forgot to do something. I know, at least you. Wait, no, just stand here. Okay. We got two people I want to introduce um, to you, special guest. Really special guests. You're all special guests that don't go to North Shore. But um, Catherine Hood, I'm going to get that one right. These, these last names of yours. Catherine Hood is Sarah Rogers' sister. So stand up, Catherine. Welcome to North Shore Baptist. She, she said, um, I don't think I've had a weekend with you since you've had kids, like a week, a time away. And you know her oldest is almost 16. She now lives in Charlotte, um, really close to where Charlie and Molly live, we discovered last night. And um, so, anyway, we're really glad you came. She flew up in that awful weather last night from Charlotte. And so, we have you from another state, totally. And I want to introduce Larissa Fuller. Stand up, Larissa. You'll know if you've had any, um, any kind of... Uh, passed with the youth camp. Her husband is one of the directors, Seth Fuller. Seth was also one of the original campers at Camp Impact, but now his time has passed. He is now a director. And she drove all the way from, you're not in Massachusetts, you're, you, you're in top of Connecticut there. How long? Three hours. Three hour drive this morning. So I want to thank you for making that drive. That was a real sacrifice. She, she, she asked me, um, yeah, yeah, so I want to give you this book, How Can Women Thrive in the Local Church? That's for Larissa. We're going to, yes, because, because here's why. She, uh, she called me, was it prior to the pandemic, the world shutting down, and said, literally right before it, and said, hey, whenever you guys do another women's event, <laughs> here we go, three years later, 
she said, I'd really love to be a part of that because we're trying to develop our women's ministry. So I am so glad you took me up on that invitation, and thank you for coming down, and I hope you enjoy this. It's great seeing you for all the little folks you know here. That's wonderful. And then I want to give you this, Catherine, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors, for coming all the way from the great state of North Carolina. All right. I don't think this is going to be confusing at all for those of you who know the building and then those of you who don't know the building since we did an icebreaker you can talk to someone who doesn't know the building to encourage them to find their place where they need to be for the breakout sessions so if on your name tag there's a sticker you don't all match for purposes of the group assignments so if you have a bible on your name tag you will be meeting in Ed's office over here Right here. If you have a flower. It's an open book. Okay, open book. I assume Bible. We're in Bible context right now. Okay, the book one. Okay, then see, we're getting confused here. Now, the flower, you're going to say in the front of the sanctuary, we are going to be dividing uh, the sanctuary into thirds. So stay in front of these two doors on the side, either side of the pew, I think, or the aisle is fine. Then we're going to do the stars. The gold stars are going to be in the middle of the sanctuary. If you have a church or a building, I think it's a church, but maybe it's just a building. <laughs> You're going to be in the very back of the sanctuary where the, the chairs are, not the pews. So you can give that middle group as much space. Uh, then we're going to move on to the green leaf. That's in the mother's room. So the first door when you were back getting coffee was the office you were not supposed to go into. Still don't go into that that room. The next door is going to be the room where the leaf stickers are going to meet. There's really comfy chairs in there, so hopefully you got a green leaf. <laughs> then the next group with the hearts, you're going to be in the, the nursery that's like the door that if you just take this door and go straight to the end of the building, you're going to be in that room. Those are the hearts. And then the hands. I'm going to assume they're praying hands as well. You are going to be down to the, the end of the building on the right-hand side of the wall. So where the, the wall, the, the, the snacks and the coffee and everything were on. So if you have any questions about what I stated, where you're supposed to be, I would encourage you to first find someone that could help you that is next to you. If not, I'm happy to help you and lead you to where you're going to be. All right, ladies. Hello. <laughs> All right, we're going to re-enter into a time of worship. Um, and I just want to, again, uh, reiterate what Sarah shared with us. She said that we are to abide in Christ by accepting our position in Christ and to know that we are dependent on him. And, he read, and she read in John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing so, sisters, let's rise and let's sing to our Lord. Great, Pilgrim Progress author. And she just knew all these cool places. So Ed got a, a um, text from her yesterday. Dear Ed, I hope you're well. I could not have sent this message, or, message earlier, so apologies. A week ago today, I received a diagnosis of stage 4 cervical cancer, and the prognosis is not great. I'm having a trial of chemotherapy next Wednesday. The consultant said, has said that I might get to Christmas but, not, but only the Lord knows. The problem is it's all so up in the air and uncertain. 
with lots of family members in and out of the house. Um, a, a nephew's getting married. Um, anyway, it, it was just a very sad text. And then I, just some people, like Dan said, I just it breaks my heart. I remember her youthfulness, her smiling countenance, her kindness toward us, and her joy in the Lord. If you ever met this lady, you just she exudes the joy of the Lord. And, um, you know, even Gloria, just praying for her family, because that would be her greatest desire before she passes, that she would see them come to Christ. And um, Miglina said that she's the kindest woman on this earth. And so please take this from these testimonials that this lady for sure is going to be in heaven when she dies. Not based on our testimony, but based on the grace of God that is evident in her life that he has saved her. But would you just pray with me now for her? And then as you remember, if you have prayer time at home and if you're in your private prayer, if you would pray for Marcia. Her husband's name is Nigel. Uh, back during COVID, when they were working from home, he you know couldn't go in the office. And he was going through a great, I don't know, depression or something. And Marcia would text Ed and say, I woke up in the middle of the night and heard your voice. And it's like, oh, this lady's crazy. It was Nigel listening to Ed's sermons in a separate room of the home. So please pray for Nigel to be saved. So let me pray for Marcia now. She uh, had always wanted to come. She wanted to come to the Ocean City Bible Conference. Um, if you've ever been in our home, we have a lower shelf of old, old, old Charles Spurgeon books. She sent them all across the pond to Ed. They're really incredible antique books. But he just asked today that we would pray for Marcia, a dear sister in the Lord. And so let me take her to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that you are the great physician. We know that you have intricately made all of us. We know that you have appointed the day that we will all die. And Lord, we... Um, we trust you, but right now, God, I ask you for a miracle in her life. I ask you for healing of her, that you would cause this chemotherapy trial and all the things the doctors might want to try, that it would work, God, and that you would heal this lady and take the cancer away from her. Lord, give her strength. I thank you for her attitude in all of this. I thank you that she knows you. I thank you, God, that she has been a great light and witness to all around her. Thank you for her kind hospitality for total strangers from another country that she would accept all of us. Thank you for how she has outreach to others in her community, the gypsy families and, and people that she tries to minister to. So God, now I pray for Marcia. Would you strengthen her body and cause her to rest in you? And would you save Nigel? Lord, may this not drive him farther away, but may this bring him closer to salvation. And may you save him in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. You may go to your cla uh, classes. Go to your classes. <laughs> when, when the bell rings, you can go to, go to lunch. At, at 12.30, we're going to lunch. So sorry. I got to make this one announcement. Listen. Some of you, there are 72 of you, don't know who you are, but that's all that's going to fit downstairs. If you can't make it down the steps or don't get there in time, the other whatever of you are sitting in room five. Um, there are four long tables set up in room five. So please go accordingly. Don't be upset if you can't find a seat where you wanted. No seating assignments. First come, first serve. 72 of you downstairs. And the remainder, I won't say how many because there might not be enough chairs. Go fight for a chair and find the room at 1230. All right.
is this, hey ladies, let me make one other announcement. If you can hear me in Ed's office, listen up, listen up. Um, I totally forgot to tell you, you have some cute little favors at your tables when you go in your respective lunchrooms. The one sticker is adorable. Don't think it's just a piece of, you know, wrapper. Look at it. it uh, Yvette Chang designed them and gave everyone a lovely sticker uh, with the Bible verse on it. And just don't throw it away. I meant to announce that. That's yours to take home. Put it on your water bottle. Put it on your computer. Do whatever. Hello. Hello, ladies. Did everyone enjoy their lunch? Yes. Yeah, thank you so much to everyone who was part of that. It was so, so yummy. Um, I see what you did there with the grapes because of the vine. Did everyone get that? That was good. Maria Valley did the flowers. Beautiful. Okay. So as you could see in your schedule right now, we are going to go into the game portion of this conference to get the blood flowing a little bit. After eating, you might feel a little tired, but now is your chance to really get your competitive side out there for us ladies. Um, So we're going to play one game. The name of the game is called... What's in your purse? All right. So, who here, do most women here have a purse with them? I'd say, right? If you don't have a purse, there's also what's in your pocket. So jacket pockets do count. But you may not, you know, run to your car to get something. Just the pockets or your purse. Um, who here has played the game What's in Your Purse or knows the game What's in Your Purse? Okay, some of us. So how we're going to play the game, how we're going to play the game is you're only allowed your purse, okay? No taking from anybody else. Just, just your own purse. No pit pocketing. Just your own pockets, your own purse, okay? Um, I'm going to give out categories, which will go up in a second. Um, and... Every time that you find an item in your purse, it counts as points. There's going to be three different categories, so you can put those up for me, okay? So everyone can take a look. So these are the categories. All right, hold on. All right, let me, let me give some rules. I know everyone's excited. I'm excited too, even though I can't participate. Um, Let me give you some rules before I give you some time to look for these things, okay? So, for example, if you have three chapsticks, you're only allowed to count that one chapstick, okay? So, you have chapstick, that counts as five points. You're not like, oh, well, I have a packet of chapsticks. That's five, ten, you know. You can't do that. Uh, Same thing goes for every other item on the list. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, that's really the the main rule, okay? I'm going to set a timer for seven minutes. Try not to, you know, go frantic, but, you know, find the things that you need to do. So, I'm going to set the timer now, and then 
I'm, and then count your points, okay? Because at the end, I'm going to be asking who has the points, and I'm also going to verify. So even if you try to lie, we, will, we can't do that here. <laughs> it's a Bible conference, ladies. All right? Okay, I'm setting the timer. All right, ready, set, go. I'm so excited. I see a lot of people are getting competitive, trying to count more things. Hmm, let's see, let's see. Okay, if you got more, if you got more than 10 points, raise your hand. Okay, all right, all right. If you got more than 50 points, raise your hand. Oh, this is gonna be a tight game. <laughs> if you got more than 100 points, raise your hand. Okay, all right, we're gonna have to keep going. If you got more than 180 points, raise your hand. 180. Okay, okay, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, okay, those 11 people. Sorry, everybody else. That's too bad. You have jam. You have jam and stickers, okay? That's great. You're all winners. Um, those 11 people, those 11 people that raised their hands, uh, who got more than 200 points? One, two, three, four. Is that four people raising their hand nice and high? Did I miss? Stand up, yes. Stand up. Ivy, stand up. Kelly. Yes, yeah, okay. So we have a, li we have a little prize for you guys. Come, come, come to the front. To the front. Yeah. We're going to count. We're going to count. Okay. Okay. So we're going to go down because, because we don't trust you. We have to know if you really, if you're really telling the truth. All right. Kelly. Do, do you guys remember what you had in your bag? How did you get up to... How many points did you have, Kelly? 345. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Ladies, ladies. <laughs> wow, wow. Seems seems like June's a little jealous here. I don't know. I don't know. All right, Kelly, apart from, you know, your gold your golden egg here. <laughs> what what else did you have in your bag? Can you are you able to remember? She's prepared, ladies. She's prepared. Give it up for Kelly, yeah. You, you said 345, okay. Sil yeah, that's a, that's a big one. Sylvia, is that right? Sylvia, well, how many points did you have? 260. 260, okay, very good. Uh, which items were yours? Cell phone, chapstick, credit card, sunglasses, car keys, pen, tampon. Yes. Queen! 
Queens now. We're in Queens. <laughs> That's right. Woo. Very good. Our next lady, May. Oh. Arrange yourselves in order. So Kelly's number one. Then we'll move. Yep, there we go. What did you have? What snack? Nice. Okay. Great. Woo! Last but not least, Miss Ivy. Wow. Well, you know what they say: the least is the greatest in the kingdom. That's right. That's right. Right. For our two, two young ladies here, we're going to have some prices for you first. We have two beautiful anklets made by the one and only Maria Valley. Thank you. So we're going to give those to you. Do you guys want to see them? And for our two winners, you guys are all winners, but for the, <laughs> the ones who had the most points, we have two tote bags made by Yvette Chang, so thank you. All right, you guys can sit down. Yes, go boast, boast of your winnings. You're welcome. All right. And because we do have, so I just gave six to four, we do have four more. We're going to do a quick round of a sword drill. Who knows what a sword drill is? Okay. Sword drill. I will give a Bible verse. Okay. And whoever can stand up, so you have to stand up, open it, read the verse is going to win that. So there are four more. So I'm going to give you four verses, okay? First one to find it and read it. Hold on a second. <laughs> Present swords. Then I give you the passage. Stands and reads it. Yes, you can't. Yeah, you, you. Once you find it, you stand up and read it. You have to be standing, okay? But you can't. Yes, when I say go, then you, then you go and look for it, okay? Does ever? Yeah, yeah. Please use a Bible. Does it? Is that present sword? Me. Okay, first, first passage, Hebrews 8, 10. Go, 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 yeah. 
Here we go. Okay, I'll do a better job this time. Present sword. Present sword. All right. Romans 5, 3 to 5, go. Larissa. All right, two more. There's still a chance. There's still a chance. Present sword. Ezekiel 36, 26. Go. chance everybody your last chance okay present sword proverbs 31 30 go this has been a really sweet morning and Afternoon now. What time is it even? Yeah. Um, I just want to give a round of applause to all the ladies who served to make this day possible for the lunch, the breakout leaders. This has been a really impressive time to be together um, and just really impressive to see how you guys love each other and want to serve. Um, go ahead and open back up with me to John 15. We're going to keep going in the passage a little further. As you're turning there, I um, was thinking back to August the 2nd, 2003, because that marked a really important day in my life. It's where I walked down the aisle of my church, took the hand of Matt Rogers, and vowed to love, honor, and obey him until death parts us. Before this day, I was Sarah Hood. My friends called me Sarah in the Hood <laughs> because they thought it was funny. But in the moment that the pastor said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, I received a new identity. And at first, there didn't actually seem to be very much different about my life. We got on a plane from South Carolina. We went to California, to San Francisco for our honeymoon. And we just didn't have to go to our separate houses anymore. That was a different, new, a change. Uh, but other than that, not really much had changed about who I was as a person, who he was as a person. Even my driver's license still had my maiden name on it. Like, really, my identity was still the same. But when we returned to Greenville, South Carolina, and reality set in, <laughs> the reality of living with another person that I thought I knew but didn't really know, 
who I dearly loved, but who could also make me want to pull my hair out with anger and annoyance at why, why would you do this? I don't, who does this? I don't understand how you could even do this. When that reality set in, I began to realize how much had actually changed. <laughs> my life had actually changed. This was a big shift. The temperature in our house now stayed at 68 degrees year round. So I walked around in sweatshirts and sweatpants in South Carolina in the middle of the summer because it was like walking into a freezing cold Arctic place in my house. ESPN constantly blared from the TV. And Saturdays were now for football. This was not a thing before I got married. I, this is foreign. This is new. I am seeing as I am engaging in this life now that things are different. Things are changing. And I didn't know what to even expect in those changes. I thought I had an idea when I first got married. I didn't know. Um, our honeymoon phase was full of big emotions, like big joy. This is amazing. And really big anger. Like, I can't believe you would do this. And thinking, I could not love this man more than I do now. But there were also many days early on where I chafed under those changes to my life, where the hanger on the floor would make me more angry than I ever thought I could ever be in my life. And I'm chafing under these, these new conditions that I find myself in. But next August, we will celebrate 20 years of marriage. And thank you. <laughs> And I now can't identify myself anymore without referring to Matt. Like, he is part of who I am. My life is intertwined in his, and I have grown to enjoy the things that he enjoys. I have fundamentally changed as a result of living life with him for so long. I'm a different person now than I was 20 years ago because of living with him. And I love him more today than, I knew, than what I knew was possible when we first got married. Raise your hand if you've been married longer than 20 years. Whoa, look around. Longer than 30 years. Wow. Longer than 40? Longer than 50? Whoa. That is amazing. I, you said earlier 57, you think? Is that right, Doris? 57. How about you? Wow, on Tuesday, happy anniversary. <laughs> so you guys know what I'm talking about, right? The longer that you've lived with this person, the more that it changes you and your identity becomes wrapped up in who they are. So the same is true in our relationship with Jesus. When he first grafts us in and makes his home with us and we make our home with him, there can be a period where we feel like not much has really changed. What is, I mean, there's some differences, but I don't really know even what the differences could be, what it's going to be like. But as we abide with him, we begin to see new desires, changes in our heart, changes in our thinking, changes in the way that we act or speak. And sometimes we may chafe under those changes, but as we grow in trusting God and abiding with him, 
in his love for us, we start seeing how we more naturally choose the things that will please him because we love him, because he has loved us. He's providing for us. We see all of these uh, ways that he serves us. So in this session, we are going to focus on some of that external fruit that comes from living life abiding with Jesus. Some of the fruit that we should be seeing in our lives if we say we have been grafted into the vine. So we're going to look at John 15. We're going to start again in verse 8. Even though that ended our last talk, we're going to start there and go through verse 17. So read along in your Bibles with me. Again, I'm reading from the CSB, which I said that earlier and then somebody asked what that was. Christian Standard Bible. It's just a different version of the Bible, different translation. My Father is glorified by this that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. So we saw earlier that God does the work of uniting us to the true vine. And he does this work, he prunes us, he unites us to his vine to make us fruitful branches. So we begin to see this external fruit, the results of his work, and they come out in our head, in our heart, and in our hands. And I want you to just keep that picture in your mind. This is the way that God changes us. He changes our head, our minds, the way that we think. This is what Romans talks about, that we renew our minds every day. He changes our heart, our desires, the things that we want to do, that we have the will to do. And he changes our hands, the things we actually do. Does that make sense? So head, heart, and hands, these are the way that God changes us. And why does he do this? Why does he want us to change? We can see in verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So bearing fruit, this inward change, glorifies God. It puts his greatness on display, and it proves to us and to a watching world that we are his disciples. It's proof as we see this fruit. What is a disciple? It literally means a learner. A learner. It also can denote a follower, someone who patterns their lives after the one that they follow. As they learn, they pattern their life after that teaching. This is what we do as disciples. We learn from Jesus, and then we change our lives to pattern them after after what he has taught. This is the goal of abiding in Christ, that we would glorify God and look more like his son, pattern our lives after Jesus. So as we make our home in Jesus and he makes our home in us, we start to see these changes 
happen. And it shows the world that we are his. That same idea of the shop window, that as people pass by us, they should see you are different. There is something about you that isn't like the rest of this broken world that I see. It is a shop window putting God on display in such a way that other people are drawn to him. A disciple of Jesus is transformed by him to produce external fruit that proves we are his. And this passage shows us five areas that Jesus transforms in the lives of his disciples. So the first area, Jesus transforms our love. In verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. In verse 17, this is what I command you, love one another. In verse 12, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. Anytime there's a command in scripture, it's because we don't do that. That's why he has to command it because it's not something natural that we do. So this is a command because it's a teaching that Jesus is giving that means we have to change the way that we live our lives to pattern it around the way what Jesus is commanding us to do, what, what he's teaching. But he says in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. Let's think about how the Father loved Jesus. Because if we're supposed to pattern our lives away the, around the way Jesus loves, around the way God loves, we should know how he loved, right? So how did the Father love Jesus? One, he loved through his giving. The Father giving to his Son. In John 3.35, it says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. All, everything. The Father gave everything into Jesus' hands. Power, authority, rule. Everything belongs to Jesus and it's given to him by his Father. Uh, the Father loved Jesus through his delighting. Think about after Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends like a dove and the Father from heaven says, this is my Son who I love and in whom I am well pleased. The Father delighted in him. This is not like a grudging, like I have to love you kind of love. He delighted in him. The Father loved Jesus through his revealing, teaching him, showing him what he was doing. In John 5.20, he says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The Father kept nothing from Jesus. He revealed everything to him. The Father loved the Son with the love of delight and pleasure. And in this way, you are loved. You are loved by God. He delights in you. You are a pleasure to him. I mean, that's an amazing thought, right? We just sang about our sin, how sinful we are, how we were his enemy. And yet God wants to be with us because he loves us. He delights in us. That is why he made this way for us to be with him because he delights in us. Now how, uh, it goes on to say, as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. So how does Jesus love us? He loves us sacrificially. Even though he's in the form of God, equal with God, he stoops down, comes down to us, lives the life we couldn't live, dies the death we deserved, and is raised to new life. Sacrificially, he loves undeservedly. Like I was just saying, we were his enemy. We were apart from him. We were full of ourselves, independent, thinking we don't need you. And yet he came to us. He loves freely. 
We didn't twist Jesus' arm, begging him, hey, would you please come and die for us? We can't do it ourselves. No, we didn't twist his arm to do that. He said, I give my life away. I give it up. Nobody takes it from me. I willingly lay it down. So he, he loves us freely. He loves us beneficially. We have an inheritance. We have mercy, grace, mercy that is greater than our sin. He loves us in a way that benefits us. And he loves us unchangingly. His love for us remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't change. The more we abide, the more we grow in our love for Jesus. In the same way that the longer that I've lived with Matt, seen his love, his service, his kindness, his forgiveness to me when I've hurt him, my love for him grows, the same is true. The longer we abide in Jesus, the more our love for him grows And that changes how we love each other. We are then able to obey this command. As I have loved you, you go love one another. So how should we love one another? We can obey the command to love one another only as we abide in Jesus. Thinking about his deep love for us. And then we love others as Jesus loved us. We love others sacrificially. We love others undeservedly. Even when they don't, we don't feel like they deserve our love, we love them anyway. We love them beneficially. We do good to them, an ultimate good to them. Not just what we think is good, but what does God think is good for them? That is the kind of good we want to do for them. We love them freely, and we love them unchangingly. That is how we are called to love. But specifically here, Jesus is talking to his disciples He is calling them to specifically and intentionally love each other. So we obey this command as we intentionally love those in our local church. And in our local church, love calls us to forgive when we are wronged. Love calls us to pursue reconciliation when others wrong us. Or when we wrong others, excuse me, pursue reconciliation when we wrong others. Love calls us to consider others as better than ourselves and stoop to serve them. Love calls us to bear one another's burdens. Love calls us to be present with each other and not give up meeting together, to spur one another on to love and good works. You guys, I have been so spurred on just by listening to you sing today with the, I can tell you are singing these words because you know this is the only hope. This is true. I have to sing this with all of me. It has spurred me on. Just being with you, the presence of being together. And love calls us to knowing how undeservedly we are loved um, so that we can continue to pursue and love those in the church around us. So Jesus transforms our love. Jesus also transforms our obedience. In verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Again, I I love this. Jesus is like, I'm not asking you to do something I haven't already done. I've shown you how to do it twice now. I've shown you how to love. I've shown you how to keep God's commands. I'm asking you to do that with me. Keep his commands. It's for your good. So, Maybe you're thinking when you read that, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Maybe you're thinking, wait, I am a good Bible student. 
I know I can't keep the commands. That's why Jesus had to die, because I can't keep them. And you're right. You can't keep the commands. Only Jesus perfectly kept the commandments. Salvation is not of works. You can't do the commands to earn salvation. But we're not talking about salvation here. We are talking about sanctification. And for the believer, you are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we can't do the good works to earn God's love, earn our salvation, but out of the fact that we are loved, the fact that we have been saved, we are called to do good works, to do the things that God has commanded us to do. So again, the order is important. (laughs) It's not I go and serve or I go and do the right things in order to earn God's love, earn God's favor. It's the opposite. Because I have God's love, I'm going to do what he asks of me. And Jesus provides what you need to live out what you were created for. He pours out his spirit, giving us the desire and the will to obey. And as we obey, we see that he provides what we need, and we grow to be able to do that more, grow in love for him and be able to obey more. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He changes our will, and he gives us the ability to keep his commands, to do what he's called us to do. And again, he says, um, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. So how did Jesus obey? Well, he was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was without sin. He loved his father and wanted to please him. And that love was so strong that he could say no to sin because he loved the Lord. He loved the Father. And he knew the Father is for me. The Father has so much more for me. He knew, believed those things, and was able to say no to sin. He obeyed by staying, remaining in God, by communing with God. He prayed. He meditated on the word. He was abiding with the Father to resist temptation. And he continually sought to do not his own will, but the will of him who sent him, the will of the Father. Then he obeyed in uh, relationship with others. He lived life with other people who were also seeking the kingdom of God. He's leading ahead of them, but they're on the same path. They're able to do this together. I love that the Lord gives us people that we get to live this life with together to help us obey, help us to choose the right thing. It's a, and even Jesus got to experience that. So many people don't see how love and obedience go together. And actually, if you've been to any weddings recently, you don't actually hear that language anymore, to love, honor, and obey. They take that out, right? It's like, no, what? Obey? No, (laughs) I'm not doing that. However, in a marriage, when I married Matt, I was giving myself to him fully, trusting him to be for me and to work for my good as his wife. In the honeymoon phase, I was eager to do anything he asked me. What do you want me to do? Yes, I'll do it. I'd love to. Yes, I'll do whatever. I was all excited. This is my husband. I'm going to do all the things for him. I was eager to please him because I knew he loved me. He was for me. He wanted my good. We're in this together. I'm eager to please him. Now, I'm not going to say that that's gone away. Maybe a little bit of, you know, the eagerness part of it. I don't know. But it's still there. And it has even, maybe it's just kind of leveled out. That's a good, that's a good way to put it, okay? But 
it's been, it's still there. That eagerness to please him is still there because he has been so good to me over the years. Over the last 20 years, he has loved me well. He has served me. He has been kind to me. He has thought of me and put me before himself. I can point to ways that he has loved me well. And so I am eager, willing to do the things he asks me to do because he has proven to be for my good. So if we confidently believe, again, this is like he changes our head, our heart, and our hands. We can't do the hands part until our heart and our head tell us God loves me. He is for me. He is going to provide what I need. I can hold on to his promises because he's going to keep his word for me. And as we grow in that knowledge and that heart, then our desires can be carried out in actions that please him. Obedience without confidence in God's love becomes legalism. It's a way to earn God's love. And that's how people get burned out. That's how people give up because they're trying to do that on their own, not remembering the truth of how God is for us, that he loves us. You guys have shown me uh, what a serving body you have over the last couple of days. Since Thursday night, we had a little dessert and coffee night with some of the leaders, ladies of the church, just to hear how many ministries there are, how many places people are serving in, to see this conference come together, how many of you have pitched in and served, given of your time, um, your energy, your resources to make this happen. You guys are a serving church. Just don't forget that you're serving and obeying because you are loved by God not to earn his love. We have to keep that in our minds. And that is how Jesus could obey, because he knew he was loved. So how should we obey? Well, first, we need to abide in his word. We have to know his words. We have to consistently practice spiritual disciplines of Bible reading, meditation on his word, studying and memorizing, prayer and fasting, and put his word into practice. Because trusting his promises and what he says about us is the fuel for our obedience. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That is a promise. I'm sure of this. He's going to do it. Knowing God's word gives us the fuel to obey. We obey by walking with his spirit. The spirit is our helper. That's his job, is to help us, is to teach us all things that Jesus said and to bring to our remembrance what Jesus said. That's another reason I've loved singing these songs because it reminds me what is true, what is in the Bible that is true about me, about life in this broken world, about our future, all of these truths that I so easily forget. When I'm in a hard place, when I'm in a trial, when I'm suffering, or even when I'm doing really well, it's easy for me to think, man, I'm doing, I am doing really well, instead of the Lord is doing, it's not me, but it's Christ in me. I need to sing these things and remind me of that because I forget. So we have to walk in his spirit, and it's the spirit's job to remind us. So as you're reminded, you can say, thank you, spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for reminding me. That was your job, and you did it. I'm reminded now. Now I get to go and obey in the right attitude, knowing that I am loved. Um, The Spirit also reveals sin to us, and sin is a hindrance to walking with the Spirit. So as God reveals your sin, 
He does that for your good so that you can repent, you can turn from that and turn to what is true, put on the new creation. So as we walk in the spirit, we obey. And then we should obey by being in community. Weekly rhythms of sitting under the preaching of the word, in Bible studies, in prayer with other believers, confessing sin to one another, uh, repenting together, these are all good things that God has given us to keep us persevering, keep us moving forward, being held by him. And then lastly, we obey by faith. By faith, trusting that what God says he is going to do, he's actually going to do. I have been a CrossFitter since 2020. And when COVID shut down life, my husband was already doing CrossFit, and they put all their classes online. And so my kids and I were like, what else do we have to do? We might as well do these exercises with you. So they were just doing body weight exercises. We're like watching a Zoom with all these other people doing these. It's kind of weird now that I think about it. But everybody on Zoom is doing their little exercises together. We would do it in the front yard. And we actually became known in our little section of the neighborhood as the CrossFit family because we were out there like, you know, lunging and people are like, what are y'all doing? You're so weird. And then when the gym reopened, my oldest daughter and I joined and we have been consistent three-ish days a week since then. Um, I was notorious in the beginning for going to class and then coming straight home and like stepping on the scale. Okay, what did it do? Oh, nothing. Nothing again. (laughs) I would get really disappointed that I wasn't seeing like big jumps in weight loss and those kind of things. I actually gained weight. I'm not lying. And I was really mad about it. I'm like, why? This is the opposite of what should be happening. Everybody's like, it's muscle. Muscle weighs more than fat. I'm like, okay, well, this is not the way it's supposed to go. However, this, so two years ago, this is when that started. Recently, uh, one of our CrossFit coaches kind of creepily was standing to the side. She took a picture of me as I was working out. And I was like, what are you doing? This is weird. But then she came over after class and she put a side-by-side picture of me from, this was just a week ago now, to the beginning of this year. I was wearing the same outfit. And she said, I just needed you to see how much progress is here. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh my goodness, you're right. I can see a difference. I can't, the scale literally, you guys, still has not gone down. <laughs> it has not gone down. And I'm really mad about it. I'm like, who, who do I file a complaint with at CrossFit to say, this is not the plan. It's not what's supposed to happen. But I can see clear differences in my strength, in my mobility, and in even just the way my body is shaped now that I didn't have when I started. She even said, And you haven't even really been trying. (laughs) Yeah. She said, you haven't even really been trying. You've just been consistent. I'm like, okay, I feel like consistency is trying. So there's that kind of a backhanded compliment, right? But her point stuck with me as I thought about my own walk with Jesus, because the Christian life is one of a long obedience in the same direction, a long obedience in the same direction. As we are consistent in these spiritual disciplines, 
I'm not asking for like giving six hours of your day studying the Bible. God also says you got to be in the world and do these other things too. But a long obedience of consistency, of faithfulness, being in church, listening. Can you imagine? I have been in church probably every Sunday since I was born. I don't even know how many Sundays that is. Somebody can do the math. I'm terrible at math. I homeschool my kids, but I'm terrible at math. 40 years of 52 Sundays a week. 52, right? Yeah. Okay, good. 52 Sundays a week. How many Sundays is that that I have heard the word taught? That's a lot of Sundays. How many days have I been in the word? Just hearing from the Lord through scripture. That's a lot of days. And the longer that builds up, the more and more God changes us. So consistency is a really big part of our Christian walk, staying with the Lord, faithfully remaining with him, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. That will build this life. We build our home in him, and he changes us. I saw um, a picture one time of a, a picture of sanctification that said, it was kind of like a chart. I should have brought in a, the whiteboard. Kind of like a chart. Imagine a chart like this, Okay. This bottom line is years. This side line is growing in our um, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And it said at the beginning, when we first first Christians, the cross is like this big. Like we get it. It's changed our lives. But it's, it's about this big. But as we grow in our walk with the Lord, the cross becomes bigger and bigger. Our knowledge of our sin gets bigger and bigger. And Jesus' grace gets bigger and bigger. And our love grows bigger and bigger so that we want to please him. So keep that chart in your mind as you think through your own walk with the Lord. He is working in you. These daily faithfulnesses, he is using those to change you. Believe him. Next, Jesus transforms our joy. In verse 11, he says, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So Jesus doesn't command us to love and obedience so that we will trudge through life trying to drum up feelings of love and white knuckle our obedience. Holding on, I have to do this thing. I just have to keep going. That isn't what he's called us to. He tells us to do these things so that our joy can be complete as his joy flows through us. That joy is full, running over. Remember that this is the last hours of Jesus' life, right? He's on his way to death. And he knows it. So how can he talk about this joy when he's walking to death? Well, I think his joy came from knowing that he was obeying his father in these last hours. He knows his father's love for him and the promised reward that he's about to experience. He knew the joy set before him, like Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of God. That was the joy set before him. He knew he was about to do the work that was going to save so many people from their sin. That brought joy to him. He knew he was going to please his father in this. That brought him joy. And he knew the reward that was coming. That brought him joy. Andrew Murray says, Joy alone is the proof that what we have really satisfies our hearts. As long as duty or self-interest or other motives influence me, men cannot know what the object of my pursuit or possession is really worth to me. (laughs) 
But when it gives me joy, they see me delight in it, and they know that to me at least it is a treasure. Joy is an indication of where your satisfaction is. And as we grow in our satisfaction with Jesus, our joy grows too. So joy comes as we comprehend the treasure that we have in Jesus. As we think and realize this treasure that we have, our joy grows. Joy comes as we see people come to faith and begin to live out the purpose for which they were created. I've heard so many testimonies this weekend of how the Lord brought people to faith in this body, and it's been so encouraging to me to hear how the Lord drew them in, how he orchestrated events so that they would hear the gospel and put faith in Christ. And it brings me so much joy to hear that. Joy comes as we see the fruit of the Spirit's work in us. Just like I had a lot of joy when I was looking at those two comparison pictures from the beginning of the year to now. There's a lot of joy in that. I can have joy, too, thinking about what I was like when God first saved me versus how I am now. And that gives me hope to know he's going to keep doing that. Joy comes with a change of perspective. So remember in session one that God uses our suffering and discipline to prune us. But we can rejoice knowing that God is making us more dependent on him, making us more like him in our character. It changes our perspective. It gives us joy even in hard times. We can also rejoice in difficulty knowing that Christ rules over all and he is going to make all things new. He is moving history in a direction right now to a new creation where there will be never-ending joy. This is our reward that we are moving to right now. And that gives us hope. Joy comes with a new hope. Um, Just a little bit later in John 16, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Amen and amen. I know that sorrow five times over. There is sorrow. I I think sorrow is actually a bad word. It's like, what, I mean, terribleness, pain, suffering. It's just lots, okay, sorrow. She has sorrow because her hour has come, but... When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Joy comes with a new hope. My hope is not in this world. There is nothing here that is going to satisfy me. My hope is in the world to come where I will have never-ending joy. So our perspective has to change, and we have to have a new hope and keep our hope there in order to experience this joy. This world is temporary. These momentary trials are producing joy as we think about being with Jesus forever. And then we have to pursue thankfulness. There is nothing that builds your joy in the Lord like cultivating a heart of gratitude to him. So look for ways that he's working in your life and in the lives of those around you and give thanks. Next, Jesus transforms our identity. Our identity. In verses 13 through 16, he says, No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, 
but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. We are no longer servants, but friends of Jesus. We all love our friends. We, we think about them. We try to do things to show that we care. Um, but Jesus lo- shows his love for his friends by doing the greatest act of love that any friend could do. He gave his life in our place. Servants only obey because their master tells them to. This is like the trump card of parenting, right? Do it because I said so. Just do it. I, I told you to do it, so you should do it. Servants are not brought into the counsel, the mind, or the confidence of their master. But Jesus brings us into the counsel, the mind, and the confidence of the Father. We're not his servants, we're his friends. And how do we know if we're friends of Jesus? If we keep his commands. It's proof that we are his friends. This is not a, again, backwards idea. If you keep my commands, then you're my friends. No, it's if you keep my commands, that is showing you are already my friends. Does that make sense? Little little flip in the way that we think about that. We are also not the chooser. We are the chosen. Scripture is clear that there's no one who seeks after God, no one who would choose God's ways, but instead we see him as foolish apart from Christ. His ways are foolish, but in spite of our rejection of him, he doesn't reject us. He has chosen us, if you belong to him, to be grafted into this vine and bear fruit. So we have to know who God says we are, who our identity is, through his word and believe that it's true. Again, head, heart, right? Know who God says we are by his word and believe that that is true. Our beliefs then fuel our actions. And when we believe rightly, we will live rightly. We will obey rightly. It also changes our confidence. Knowing our identity means that we can actually approach him with confidence in prayer. And that's our last one, that Jesus transforms our prayer. In verse 16, He goes on, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. He will give you. Prayer is a means of abiding, and it's a fruit of abiding. It's both. It's a means, a way that we abide in Christ is by praying. I said that in the last session, that one of the ways you can tell you're abiding is if you're praying. That shows dependence on the Lord. But it's also a fruit of abiding. It's what is produced in our life is more prayer, (laughs) Because we are abiding in him. As we grow in our love and obedience to Jesus and our desires start to align with God's purposes in our lives, he can make that promise and keep it that whatever we ask in his name, he will give it to us because he delights in answering those prayers that align with his will. Just like I delight in answering my kids' cries for a Chick-fil-A milkshake because that aligns with my wants, my desires. (laughs) glad you're paying attention. But unlike the Chick-fil-A milkshake analogy, God's desires are always for our good (laughs) and for his glory, but he delights to answer our prayers that align with his will. That is going to bring him glory. That is going to be for our good. Andrew Murray says, prayer is one of the chief channels of influence by which through us as fellow workers with God, the blessings of Christ's redemption are to be dispensed to the world. It is a channel of influence to the God of the universe who is in control of everything. He wants to hear our prayers. He wants us to ask him for things. And it changes how he acts. 
He listens, he hears, and he acts, is what the psalmist tells us. And we get to work with God in his work in the world as we pray. So, again, a head, heart, hands. Trust that God listens to your prayers. He hears you from heaven when you pray to him, and he acts. So pray with confidence and boldness. Pray without ceasing. Pray scripture. You want to know what aligns with God's will? Anything you pray in here, that's going to align with his will, right? Pray scripture. And pour out your heart to Jesus, knowing that he cares for you. So God is powerful to graft you into the true vine and make you a fruitful branch for his glory. Go and produce fruit as you leave here today, as you remain in the vine. Let's pray, and then I am going to actually put you in some groups to work on something else really quick before we leave. Father, this world is so broken. There is so much in it that um, distracts, that makes it difficult to keep my mind and my heart um, fixed on the things that you say are true. God, I thank you for the church um, to come alongside me and remind me of things that are true. I thank you for your word that tells me what is true. I thank you for your spirit that you sent to live with us so that we could stay. He would keep us. I thank you for the truth that when I feel like I can't hold on to you anymore, that you are still holding on to me. I thank you that you are the one who are, are producing fruit in me. And that, that was your, that's why you created me, is to glorify you, to produce fruit that lasts. And I thank you, God, that this is fruit that will last. The things you're doing in my heart the things that you are doing in the world right now to call people to yourself, that is fruit that is eternal. And one day, we will be sitting in heaven with you. You will be our God. You will be among us, living with us, and we will live with you. And we will get to see the fruit of that labor come to fruition as we sit with you. And God, we look forward to that day. Would you help us to long to be with you, to say, like John at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, we are ready for you to come, for you to make all things new. God, I pray that you would grow those desires in us as we remain in you, as we see the treasure of who you are. Would you help that to change our lives, to change how we love, to change how we serve, to change our joy, our attitude, our thankfulness, our prayers. God, would you change us to look more like Jesus? And we pray that in your name. Amen. So, if you still have your sheet of breakout questions from this morning, there's a little bottom section that says breakout questions, session number two. If you don't have it, maybe you can look over with a friend or... I can tell you some of what they say. It's not very hard. 
Uh, Whenever I'm studying a passage of scripture to teach it, I said this earlier, that I get to be in that passage for weeks leading up to this. And it sinks into me as I look in God's word. Um, And I don't want ever anyone to think, I mean, hopefully you don't think this. Hopefully it's what I did today is really simple. I don't ever want anybody to think though, like I could never do that. How did she pull out those things from that passage? How does she see those things? It is, if you just give some time and attention to God's word, those things are going to naturally come out. And so I wanted to end our session today by looking at another passage of scripture that is actually really similar to the one that we were just in. It's also written by the same guy, so maybe that's why, because John wrote 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, and wrote, you know, he wrote a lot of books of the Bible. Um, but this passage says a lot of similar things to what we just read. So what I would like for you to do is to kind of turn with just the people right around you, like maybe right behind you, so a group of four or five maybe. Um, and I want you to look at the passage, John, or 1 John 4, verse 7, through chapter 5, verse 4. And I just want you to walk through looking at a passage of scripture yourself that we didn't talk about today and examining it. And the way that I want you to do that is by asking a few questions of the passage. So the first question I want you to ask is, this is a few verses, but just in a quick, like one sentence, what does the passage say? If you could summarize the whole thing, What does the passage say? Now, when you're answering this question, you need to make sure that the words you're using are actually found in the passage. It's easy for us to be like, oh, well, I know the Bible. What he's really saying is, no, I don't want to know what you think he's saying. I want to know what does he actually say in a quick one sentence kind of summary. Then I want you to look back through the passage and I want you to kind of bullet point. What does the passage tell us about God? Where do you see God's activity in the passage? Where do you see his words? What does the passage tell us about his character? I just want you to bullet point that out and put verses beside it. Where do you see it? Does that make sense? Um, Then, what does this passage tell us about Christians? And what does it tell us about those who aren't in Christ? And do the same thing. Bullet that out. Where do you see that? What verse do you find it in? Then question four, what similarities do you see between this passage in 1 John and the passage that we just talked about today in John 15? What are the similarities between them? And are there any differences? And then I want you to share with your group one takeaway from John's writings in 1 John and in John 15 that we just read, um, and what you plan to change in your mind, your heart, or your actions based on what we've talked about today? What is one thing you plan to change in your heart, your mind, or your actions based on what we've talked about today? If you don't get to all of those questions, make sure you get to the last one because sometimes it's easy to hear lots of teaching and to leave and say, man, that was just really good. All of it was really good. And then you get home tonight and somebody asks you, what'd you think? Oh, it was just so good. It was was really good. But then we do nothing about it. And that is not what God wants. He says that's like a person who looks in the mirror and they look at what's there and then they just walk away. They don't even really look. No, that's not what he wants. He wants us to change something based on what we've heard. So what is one thing that you are planning to change in the way that you think, in your heart, or your actions based on the words that you've heard today? So how long are we going to? Just do it. So we're going to sing. 
one song, mm -hmm. like a quick closing announcement, and we're supposed to be done at three. But we, so I would say take five minutes on this. I know that's not much. Yeah. If they can go home as well and finish it. Yep, that'd be and great. I think the smaller your groups are right now, I would say two or three people. That's so perfect. So if you didn't hear that, we need to be done with this in five minutes-ish, you know. It's doable, totally doable. So maybe just, maybe what you should do actually is take this home and work on the passage yourself and just stick with the last question. Does that work? Okay, let's do that. Let's do that. So share one takeaway in your groups and then we'll sing and be done. All right, ladies. Next year, I promise we'll go till four, but today we're going till three. So stick into the schedule. Thank you, Sarah, so much. Thank you very much. And just like you told us to say, it was really good. It was, it was just really good. It, it really was wonderful, and um, I hope that you sat for a moment and were able to get that one thing that you can take home and work on, because if we are only the, the hearers of the word and not the doers, what good has it done us? It has done us none, and so let's pray for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that the things we have heard in this these two wonderful lessons and this uh, great passage of scripture and to meditate on the first John passage, please don't forget to do that. It'll be much more meaningful if you can do that tonight or tomorrow because all of this is fresh on your mind. And just to, to uh, remind yourself of what God is saying in those passages. And um, so thank you, Sarah. It was great. And we want to give you a little New York token, a little thing, yeah. <laughs> And your very own tote bag. Thank you so much. And I should have gotten like the book, the New York vocabulary book. So next time we'll get phrases from New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. All right. So. I know that it's not necessary, and I'm going to forget somebody, but I just want to run through. I, I, I agree with you, Sarah. It has been such a blessing to watch this church serve, and you ladies are phenomenal, all of you who have done that. So thank you very much. We've had a couple of ladies that had to leave, I know, um, but for those who are still, well, and some that weren't even able to come today that did a lot. So Elisa Candelier, if you see her um, at church tomorrow, thank her for her administrative behind-the-scenes work. She was very instrumental in helping. I want the ladies who helped in the kitchen this morning, the decorating team, the food that they stayed down there while you were in your breakout sessions. Ladies, stand up quickly, quickly, quickly. Barbara, come on, stand up. Myra, yes. Woo! Thank you so much. Um, Jack Amarilla, you did a lot on the administration and keeping us straight on everything. Thank you. And ordering the food, overseeing the music. It was wonderful. Maria already left, but the flowers are incredible. Speaking of which, 
This one is staying here for tomorrow. That was a great idea, Jackie. There are a few bouquets that we're not allowing you to take the little vases because we use those all the time at church, but Maria wrapped them in foil, and so it's going to be like kind of like that coffee hour, first come, first serve. Just go over there and pick up a bouquet. They're in that, on that little wooden bench. So please get those and take them and put them in some water. They're really beautiful flowers. Um, she also did those lovely anklets. Susie, again, you know, thank you for that incredible original design. It was just beautiful. And I, I actually lost mine. So I might commission you to do something yeah, else for me on that. Um, Yvette, the tote bags, the stickers, you're always so creative and so fun. Where are you? Where are you? There you are. Thank you. Danielle Fent had a previous engagement and was not even able to come, and she made every one of those desserts, that bunt cake at the coffee hour. She made that apple stuff. I almost didn't send it up to you in the kitchen. I kept... <laughs> That, those apple bars, did it? Very few of us got that, but I'm going to tell you that was really good. Danielle Fent, when you see her tomorrow at church, you thank her. That was a labor of love, all that homemade stuff. Um, Jim Salerno and Mike McKeon, the two men coming through to go to ShopRite and get our food. Yes. (laughs) Vivian Smith, shopping at Costco with me texting back and forth. Thank you, Vivian. I don't know if you're still here. Where are you? Yes, thank you, sister, for doing that. Gabby Jimenez, you are the new game master. Where are you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and on the spot, coming up with the sword drill to finish us off. I mean, that was really good. Um, Emily, a, a little bit of tension with the flights. You made it back. Thanks for organizing the group time for the icebreaker, which I kept saying, no movement involved. I didn't realize there would be such mental activity that none of us could come up with a word for our names. So, And I ended that by saying, on, finally, I was the last one in my group. I was shaking. I could not think of anything. And for him, I go, gosh, I hate to be a downer, but oh, it's just, I, well, I'll be really honest. I'm just motivated by guilt. And they all look at me and they're like... Couldn't you have said something a little bit more encouraging for the first thing we do in the morning? (laughs) So, great, great icebreaker, Emily. Uh, Thanks to the group leaders who were uh, facilitating our time together. Good job. Thank you. Thank you to the other churches again for coming out, spreading the word for all of you visitors. We love you, and we really are honored that you spent your Saturday with us. So thank you so much for coming. Um, And I think that is it. Sarah, I said, golly, there was one other thing, and I didn't write it down, but it's okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to stand up. Oh, I know what it was. I looked at your, Alice, I looked at your beautiful face laughing at me. And, and smiling, and that I remembered. Do you know what it is? I want to tell you what it is, ladies. We have been in this thing for a long time, some of you o- older, long-time North Shore members, and one of the greatest blessings for us, by far, whether we've talked about it or not, and some of us have, is to watch you younger generation come along. Has that not been the greatest blessing? <laughs> Amen. So, I... We can just happily move out of your way, and you are doing an excellent job. So next year, the schedule's nine to four, and that's all I'm going to give you on that. So (laughs) 
Good luck. All right. So um, I'll ask the mu- oh. music team. It's right there. I skipped it. Yep, right there. Michalina. I said, Jackie, I need you to train Michalina. I don't know that she actually needed training because she has it. She did a great job for that. Sarah Park. We prayed. She, she can't even play today because she's had to practice the guitar so much. She has no calluses because she doesn't play normally. So what this teaches me is, I hope it teaches you the same thing, is that you need to be on our regular rotation of guitar playing. Yes. Because you need some calluses. Mary, you are the queen of that. Don't ever, you just, that's your seat. You did a great job. Um, Sylvia got trained to do this soundboard, and it is a thankless, awful job. Thank you for doing that. And, and, we are seven minutes over. Artesia, where did, where are you? I, I am going to cry. I'm not going to try, I'm not, I'm going to try not to cry. You are getting married, which, that's not why I'm crying. I'm really happy for you. But we are losing you. And when you were playing today, I just thought, Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful sounds that come out of that piano because of you. So anytime we have this next year, it's 9 to 4, remember, and we need you here that day. Okay, thank you, thank you. God bless you when you get married. We we love you. All right, let's sing. I just want to say I have been so encouraged and honored to stand here and look at you all praising the Lord with such joy, with huge smiles on your faces, with hands raised, and it has encouraged me to sing louder, and it's just been the greatest blessing. So thank you for showing your love for the Lord through singing. And we're going to close our time together today with the theme song of this conference, our new song, Abide. And now that we know it, we can sing it loudly and confidently. So let's sing together, Abide. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for every woman who came here tonight to hear your word, Lord, to fellowship, to grow in love for one another and to grow in love for you, Lord. Thank you for your son. Thank you that you sent him to this, le- to this earth to live a perfect, sinless life that we could not live, Lord. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross, for being risen from the dead, and that through him we can be brought into your fold, Lord, that you call us children, that we can call you Father, Lord. I thank you that that is the blood of Christ that unites all of us, Lord. I pray that we would live to honor you, to follow you, and to make your name known in this world, Lord. So as we go today, fill us with joy, fill us with uh, passion to share the gospel, to share the truth with uh, those that don't know it. And so please um, give us love for you, give us love for one another, and uh, take us safely home, Lord. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.